Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Increased Excitation, Inhibition, Balance, and Loss of GABAergent Synapses in the Serene Race Mace Knockout Model of NMDA Receptor Hypofunction. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez, and author, Dr. John Gray. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Thanks, Jamie. It's a great pleasure. And John, I very much look forward to talking to you about your paper on the NMDA receptor hypofunction. And you put your study in the context of schizophrenia. And given that you're an MD-PhD, I don't feel guilty to ask you some questions about schizophrenia just to give the people a, a broader context. And I think most people know that it's a very prevalent disorder. You know, like I, I think the numbers are like 0.4%, which is a huge number worldwide. And I think one problem is it's a heterogeneous disorder that is defined by key symptoms. So we have typically these positive and negative symptoms. So could you perhaps talk about, you know, how do we define schizophrenia and what are the symptoms and what are we trying to model in animal models? So thanks so much, Joan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm an MD-PhD. I did my clinical training in psychiatry. Um, and schizophrenia was really a primary interest of mine, but I have moved to the lab to really focus on the basic biology of underlying these complex systems. And from my clinical experience, I mean, schizophrenia is a very complex, challenging disorder. Like you said, it is fairly prevalent. I think classically, we've always thought about 1% of the population, though I think more sophisticated studies recently have brought that down a little bit, but anywhere between point like you said, 0.4 and 1% of the population, but that's still a significant number of people. I mean, in the US, I mean, that is on the order of two to 3 million people in the United States. So that's a, it's a large number of people that, that suffer from schizophrenia. And like you said, it's very heterogeneous. People have different kinds of symptoms and we don't really understand this heterogeneity and what makes some people have some symptoms and some people have other symptoms. But like you said, we, th we think of these categories of symptoms from positive symptoms and negative symptoms. So the positive symptoms are what people generally think of when they think of schizophrenia. These are things like the hallucinations, delusions, um, really disordered thinking. Their thought processes are not linear. They're not able to express their thoughts as clearly as, as, as many people. And many of our treatments today are really focused on these positive symptoms. But what we've learned in the last few decades is that the positive symptoms are not the most impairing for these people, for people that are suffering from schizophrenia. It's really some of these other, other symptoms that they have. So these include the negative symptoms, um, things like really uh, a social dysfunction, um, anhedonia, which is just kind of a lot, lack, lack of interest in things, lock, loss of pleasure in things that people do, um, really kind of a, a low mood in general. Um, lack of motivation. Um, um, these are what we call negative symptoms, but we also recognizing that there's a lot of cognitive problems that uh, are, are found in schizophrenia. Um, problems with working memory, um, attention, vigilance, problem solving, executive dysfunction, uh, information processing, that these cognitive symptoms are really a major issue in schizophrenia. And what we found is that these these other domains the outside of the positive symptoms are hot, much more correlated with somebody's functional impairment. 
So the, the goal of treating any psychiatric disorder is for people to function in society as best as possible. And we have found that people with hallucinations and delusions can be, if that's their primary symptom, they can actually function pretty well on a day-to-day basis. It's when these other symptoms, these cognitive defects and negative symptoms are prominent, that it's much more impairing for these people. So that's been a major focus in psychiatry is how can we help people with schizophrenia with these other underlying domains. And we've generally thought about it kind of like a, uh, that these are three separate domains, but I, I like to think of it more as a pyramid and really the baseline issue are these cognitive problems in the brain that there's the information processing in the brain is fundamentally impaired. And this leads to the top of the pyramid, which are these hallucinations and delusions. So we're treating kind of from the top down. And I think a long-term goal of mine and many people in psychiatry is can we treat the underlying pathophysiology of schizophrenia um, by treating these core information processing problems and that this will lead to an overall improvement in, in the treatment of people with schizophrenia. John, this is extremely helpful. And I think not only for me, but also for the listener, because I can imagine that, you know, modeling in a mouse or an animal model in general, you know, to model the the delusions and the hallucination is very difficult because they're kind of like uniquely human, maybe uniquely human. Whereas the, the, the basis of this pyramid, these cognitive impairment probably are much more accessible to, to animal studies. And, and maybe can you be a little bit concrete about, you know, what kind of behaviors can be studied in the animal to address this pyramid, as you said? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, this has been a major change in the, the field, um, even at the basic science level with animal models, is that historically animal models came out of the drugs that we use to treat people. So we knew that using dopamine antagonists, dopamine D2 receptor antagonists specifically, are f- quite effective at treating the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. So the initial animal models were used to develop models that could be where certain behaviors could be effectively treated with these D2 antagonists. But ultimately, I think this is, a, this is not necessarily the, the long-term best approach because we're again treating an endpoint of the disease where schizophrenia probably has a much more developmental onset and has you know, circuit-wide abnormalities throughout the brain that lead to these long-term, these, uh, these positive symptoms that we talked about. So with the improvements in our understanding of some of the genetic risk factors of schizophrenia and some of the underlying changes that happen, people have developed different models, uh, different forms of animal models to really focus in on what we know is changed in people independent of what the ultimate symptom is. So for example, schizophrenia has a very complex genetic disorder. Um, The genetic landscape of schizophrenia is very large. Um, It's very complex, um, very heterogeneous, but there are certain uh, genes that are highly associated with schizophrenia and mutations in these genes can be associated in individual patients, but not necessarily the whole population of schizophrenia. So these are often a good place to start for uh, at least understanding what changes happen 
with those particular mutated genes in terms of the, the overall brain function. Um, other models are based on knowing some of the, the pathology that, that occurs. For example, uh, one of the prominent hypotheses that is part of the basis of the paper that we're discussing is an NMDA receptor hypofunction hypothesis of schizophrenia. And so this model that we use in this paper is called the serin racemase knockout mice. And it is a, an enzyme that generates one of the key factors that is required for NMDA receptor function. So when you remove that uh, globally in the brain, there's a reduction in NMDA receptor function and people, and, and we can study that and what happens in those mice. And we can see how, how well they correlate to what we know uh, from uh, clinical populations. John, this is uh, really fascinating. And, and I like very much that you point out to this fundamental concept shift, you know, that we now don't just start, let's say, okay, dopamine helped in patients. So it must be a dopamine problem, which, which then led to this whole dopamine hypothesis. And if you publish something on dopamine, you know, it, it got more published and then everybody started to believe this is the mechanism. And I think the focus on really going at the core mechanism is a paradigm shift, which, which really helps uh, us basic scientists to really relate our fun findings to the clinic. Now, when it comes down, and I think it's the core of your paper, it comes down to the an imbalance between excitation and inhibition within the circuitries, and uh, which is an issue that is highly relevant for schizophrenia, but also for autism and other disorders where you have an EI imbalance. And it's kind of interesting that, uh, for example, ketamine, and you, you, you discuss ketamine in, in the context of your paper, can actually induce schizophrenic-like syndromes, but at the same time, it can also be beneficial. Like, for example, in Rett syndrome, there's some idea. So what, what it comes down is that basically this imbalance can be in one side, but also in the other side, in both cases, you have uh, uh, symptoms. Maybe can you elaborate a little bit on, on, on this EI imbalance and how your study actually addressed that? Yeah, yeah. I, to get there, I'd like to start a little bit about the, the dopamine hypothesis and how we talk about glutamate now. You know, a lot of these historically has been, have been based on what we know about various drugs of abuse, for example. So a, a solid evidence for the dopamine hypothesis was uh, people using amphetamines, methamphetamine, uh, cocaine, these, these agents increase dopamine, and people will get delusions and hallucinations with these drugs um, that are treated well with and antipsychotics, currently available antipsychotics. Um, people have talked about a serotonin hypothesis of schizophrenia, and this is based on halluc you know, classical hallucinogens like LSD and psilocybin, which are also really interesting these days um, in the treatment of depression. And these create hallucinations, which maybe has a link to, to schizophrenia, but um, these hallucinations tend to be sensory, visual. They're not typical of what we see in schizophrenia. And then you mentioned ketamine, and there was a, a very classic study where they gave, you know, healthy volunteers a low dose of ketamine. And it was recognized that these people had kind of a, a, a symptomatology that 
represented schizophrenia better than the dopamine agents and the serotonergic agents. So they had, they could have, they would have, uh, it's more of a dissociation, uh, some hallucinations, um, but they had a lot of these negative symptoms and cognitive defects there on, on various uh, cognitive tests, they performed worse. Um, and these studies were followed up in patients with well-treated schizophrenia, and it was found, um, obviously we couldn't repeat these today because it would be considered unethical um, at this time, but it was very informative where patients with schizophrenia that were you know, kind of in remission, they were given ketamine and they had a, a very rapid worsening of their condition and it was exacerbating their, their schizophrenia condition. So this was kind of an early evidence that, that glutamate could be involved. And, you know, you mentioned this, the EI hypothesis. So glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and it mediates a lot of the point-to-point -point transmission. And um, the, the converse of that is inhibition, which is got done through the GABAergic system. And people, you know, it's been recognized recently, you know, in the last uh, decade or so that there's a lot of changes of the balance of excitation and inhibition in many neuropsychiatric disorders, specifically uh, uh, schizophrenia and autism. And th there's a lot of work on trying to understand what is the meaning of this imbalance. For example, um, you know, we classically think of EIA imbalance as being something that involved in epilepsy. So if you increase excitation, you decrease inhibition, you get seizures. You, you no longer have the balance that is, is keeping your, your brain from going into a seizure state. But we're now recognizing that more subtle changes in EI balance that, are, that could be, have a lot of compensation that is occurring as well that prevents the seizures, but having a subtle changes in this EI balance could affect information processing. So, you know, you have a, a signal going from one part of the brain to say the cortex, and this signal is involved in relaying information. And in that signal, there's both um, uh, positive information, the excitatory information, and also local inhibition that is regulating that information. And we don't fully understand how these, uh, this excitation and inhibition balance is really controlling the information. There's a lot of work on this. It's outside of my expertise. Um, but this balance seems to be very important for maintaining the fidelity of the information. So information will still get transferred, but some of that information is, is, is lost or gets confused with other information. Um, and so there's a lot of work trying to understand how these subtle changes can, can happen. John, this is kind of interesting. And, and I mean, what comes to my mind is that this, this amazing work by Gina Torrigiano and, and others, you know, that, that try to understand, you know, what are the homeostatic mechanisms to, to maintain this balance of excitation inhibition in the brain? You know, you learn something and you readjust your synapses to maintain a set point of excitation inhibition. And it seems that in these neurological disorders, you know, be it schizophrenia, be it Rett syndrome, be it being autism or something, this balance has changed and became a new set point of homeostatic regulation that now the system is trying to defend, but the set point is not what we need for normal functioning. And there are some exciting findings I find personally that you know, manipulating NO donors in humans that are activated by, by NMDA 
can reset a balance for like weeks or something. So, so do you think that in the future, it might be possible to kind of think about this as an homeostatic issue that, that we have to reestablish and, and find ways to get at this uh, NMDA, GABA, et cetera, uh, balance? Yeah, I think that's exactly on point. I think that these EI balance changes that we've seen are that in each disorder that have these, there's some sort of compensation that happens. And what we don't understand right now is the compensation that happens. Is this causing some of the, the disability or is it really a, a mechanism to try to maintain as much information processing and information flow as possible. So uh, many of the autism mouse models were shown to have these EI balance changes, but it was, there was a classic paper where they showed that these EI balance changes are really compensatory effects to maintain a certain window of activity. And I, I think that's uh, really the, the state of the art at the moment is trying to understand how much the homeostatic changes and compensation that occurs are, re are related to the disorder versus the actual initial uh, defect in the, in the EI imbalance. And I think that there's, there's camps on both sides of that argument. And I think it'll be really interesting over the next decade to see how that turns out. And it may be different for every disorder. Yeah, I mean, that, that raises very interesting questions. One is, for example, the early detection, you know, like, can you define already early on changes in neural network functions that signify a, a transition to an imbalance early on? And it's kind of like striking that, let's say, schizophrenia is, is occurring, you know, neurodevelopmentally at certain ages, you know, 20, whatever. And, and can we recognize early on that your network is starting to to get an imbalance, you know, that, that would be very interesting. And I think the next other important question is, how do we see the role of the future treatment, you know, precision medicine? Because probably every person, you know, in some people you might need ketamine and others ketamine might be uh, bad. And, and how can we go into much more personalized uh, therapies? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I think that's the, the really interesting question. Um, schizophrenia, we think of as a neurodevelopmental disorder, but the symptoms don't even show up. You know, typically there's a few things that people can find earlier, but until late adolescence, early adulthood, maybe a little bit later in women, um, where somebody has their, what we call first psychotic break, where the positive symptoms finally really show up, but things are happening developmentally up until that point that leads to that. So what are the changes that are happening during development of these neural circuits that we ultimately see in the adult? And where should we be actually studying these processes that I think are, are open questions. And a lot of what we've studied are endpoints. These, the symptoms are already there, but what is happening that leads to that? So the homeostatic changes could ultimately lead to many of the symptoms, but there are changes in the circuits that occur well earlier than that, that ultimately lead to these changes. This is, you know, many of the, the genetic risk factors for schizophrenia are clustered, for example, at synapses, uh, glutamatergic synapses, 
and the subtle defects in how synapses function during the development of an animal or a human can lead to subtle network changes that ultimately lead to the disorder. So at what developmental age point should we really be looking at to find the earliest change that we can see reliably and intervene? And with a heterogeneous disorder like schizophrenia, it's going to be very challenging and it may be different for, you know, without us really dissecting the disease into individual categories, um, which we're just unable to do at this moment. So the intersection of these, you know, the really advanced genetic work that's occurring today um, with understanding, you know, circuit development and function and, and how synapses lead to those, those circuit connections are, is really going to be the future of where we go. And, and in personalized medicine, you know, if we can identify genetic changes early on in somebody who's at high risk, for example, that may not have any symptoms yet, is there a way for us to intervene and, and boost the function of that particular synapse, for example, um, that could prevent the disease from happening. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is, these are long-term, you know, pie in the sky kind of goals, but really, yeah. I think what's going to be needed for complex heterogeneous psychiatric disorders. Yeah, I think, again, I mean, these are really fundamental questions that are, go way beyond schizophrenia, but kind of is uh, very important for, for your study in particular. And, uh, you know, this whole idea that maybe these genes are just like a trigger point. They, they start a process. And, and then what comes to my mind is this work done by Albrecht Stroh, who, who shows that in models of Alzheimer's disease, you, you get these microcircuits somewhere that are oscillating but they have no functional consequence initially, but then kind of propagate and lead to some imbalances that then lead to the disease. Or, I mean, like think about substantia nigra problems before you see any Parkinson symptoms, you already have some issues. So I think this idea of having a gene or whatever that triggers a cascade of compensatory mechanisms that then lead uh, to the outbreak of the phenotype, I think is a very interesting, important concept. Yeah, there's, there's parallels in many brain disorders, Alzheimer's, there's known synaptic dysfunction prior to either amyloid beta accumulation or any clinically relevant symptoms. So I think there's going to be opportunities to intervene earlier, but I think we need to understand a lot more about, you know, who's going to have ultimate, you know, issues. How can we predict who's going to have issues? We're not going to be treating kids with various medications in the anticipation that maybe they'll get schizophrenia and we want to maybe save it, save them from having that. It's going to be a big (laughs) challenge. Oh, Um, I agree. But we really need to understand what's happening as early as possible to make any progress. But I think you, you make a, you know, I think that is what I think is exciting about our group's paper is that we, we took two well-known phenotypes, you know, uh, I'm not sure that's the correct word. Um, things that we know about schizophrenia. One is that NMDA hypofunction is prominent and two, that there's a reduction of the GABAergic system. So our paper shows that there's this EI imbalance in this mouse model, this quote unquote mouse model of schizophrenia, um, but it's a mouse model of NMDA receptor hypofunction. And in a way that that, that was not excited, not, int- not, not novel, wasn't like unexpected because EI imbalance is very prominent in many of these models. 
I think the surprising thing that we found was that there was this early developmental, um, and we, we don't we don't have proof that it's developmental, but we see a a loss of GABAergic synapses in the pyramidal cells when we knock out this enzyme. And it's it, when we knock out the enzyme in individual CA1 pyramidal cells, we lose a large amount of our GABAergic synapses, which we really think, and we have, this is something we're following up now on, we really think is probably a developmental effect. And there's some really interesting work largely from Wei Lu's lab at the NIH that um, though this is something that's been seen kind of intermittently through, through the literature for a few decades, that there's a direct effect of NMDA receptor function in developing neurons on the GABAergic system. So there's a direct regulation of, of inhibitory synapses by excitatory synapses. And the mechanisms of that is something that we don't know yet. Um, but we found that you reduce NMDA receptor function to, you know, in early uh, development. In our case, we're, we're removing it in the first few days of life. Um, and then there's this uh, prominent loss of GABAergic synapses that occurs. Um, so in a way, it brings together two parts of the, the literature um, with a developmental spin that we couldn't do with the classic approaches that people do, which is treating with various drugs and then seeing the effects. So a lot of people model NMDA receptor hypofunction by providing a drug like ketamine to the animal, an adult animal, and you see these changes occur. But we know that that's unlikely to be relevant to the neurodevelopmental onset of a disorder like schizophrenia. So by having a genetic mouse model, we can look at what happens when we make a minor change early in development and what happens with this animal throughout its lifespan. Very good. You know, and, and I think that is the, the key part of your study is that it is a very mild hypo function of the NMDA receptor, yet you have these incredible changes in the, in the balance. So you studied the CA1 neurons in the, in the hippocampus and as a good model, so, so to what extent do you think this is like general applicable to other GABA and MDA interactions also in other circuits or? Yeah, that's, that's something that we're, we're following up on now. You know, we generally don't think of the primary hippocampal circuits as being, you know, super involved in schizophrenia. There are obviously changes there. Most people look more in the frontal cortex, um, some of the executive uh, functioning areas. Um, and a lot of the work on autism models, for example, have looked in, in the cortex um, and seen these EI balance. We, uh, in this particular paper, focused on CA1 based on other work. We were really looking primarily at the, the effect of this enzyme deletion on synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus at a very basic level. And we were... It, it was an incidental finding that we were unable to reproduce some papers in the literature. And we found by going back and looking through that literature that in all of those cases, they had blocked inhibition during these experiments, which is actually very it's understandable. They're, they're isolating the NMDA receptor effect, which is what they were looking at. And we hadn't done that. And we were like, why do we not see this, the difference when we have inhibition intact? And really, we found that it was because the inhibition is, is down. 
and we just found this dramatic reduction of inhibition. And this led to really the entire paper. So it was really an incidental finding where we were doing a control experiment and it didn't work the way we thought it was going to work. And we were like, well, that's weird. And that's interesting. So we followed it up and it led to this whole story. So it ended up being that the whole story is in the CA1 region of the hippocampus, which is not where I would initially start if I was doing a schizophrenia focused paper, for example. Um, but we were able to characterize it. The CA1 is an easy place to characterize a lot of these changes. And now we're following up in, in regions like the, like the cortex. Um, and we're seeing similar, similar effects, but we haven't, haven't put together stories yet on that. That's really cool. And, and basically, do you think there's also the opposite way? Let's say you have a GABAergic dysfunction that you, you will affect the NMDA dysfunction. So that's like a reciprocal interaction. Uh, that would be fascinating. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know mm. unless someone does that experiment. I don't, no, I'm just I thinking don't know because... a lot of literature that shows any sort of, uh, of interaction that direction, but I don't think people have mm. looked at it. Yeah. I mean, we know that, that let's say in, in epilepsy, you know, you have often issues with, with GABA receptors and, and GABA receptor expression. And it could well be that, you know, like they have also cognitive issues and, so, so maybe you have also this interaction that, that can be generally applicable also to other diseases. Yeah. So, so you discuss also the effect on, like, you look at the synapse here, but um, do you think like this has also consequences on network functions and, and how do, would they relate to, to function, for example, on the hippocampus or other areas in the brain? Yeah, I think when we talk about EI balance, we're really looking at changes in the, the power of various oscillations that are involved in information processing throughout the brain. Um, there's a large body of evidence that gamma oscillations are affected in, in schizophrenia and in these NMDA receptor hypofunction models of schizophrenia, and that these oscillations are really driven by reciprocal interactions of, of excitatory and inhibitory neurons. And we did not go into that in this, in this study. Um, there's a lot of groups that are doing really great work with this particular mouse model, looking at oscillatory function and information processing in the cortex. And there's a lot of, you know, information in a way, that's why one of our, our study was not that surprising um, that there's an EI imbalance because these groups have seen this with in vivo recordings of, of oscillatory function in, in the cortex. So we think this is providing some of the mechanistic understanding that the, the defect could be driven by decreased NMDA receptor function in individual neurons that then affect their ability to respond to, inner, to the interneuron GABA release. They, they have this compensatory reduction in their GABAergic synapses and this could lead to network-driven abnormalities, but it's not something that we have looked at in detail in my lab. Great. You know, John, uh, maybe can you give us a little bit of background, like what inspired your study and uh, what kind of was the dynamic that led to the study and what was the contribution of your different authors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my lab is really focused on NMDA receptor function at synapses. And we uh, initiated a study that was, that was published in 2020 that was looking at single cell 
deletion of serine racemase. We wanted to see if neuronal serine racemase removed from a single neuron could affect NMDA receptor function because there's this big controversy of where is it's the, the enzyme makes this uh, compound called D-serine. It's a, an isomer, a stereoisomer of L-serine, which is the, a standard amino acid that makes our proteins, but it acts as a, a, what we call a coagonist at NMDA receptors. They require it for their function um, at synapses. And there's a, a significant literature that's saying that the D-serine is coming from astrocytes. But there's also a significant literature saying it's coming from neurons. And it's a major controversy in the field. And I wanted to explore this using some of the approaches in my lab, which involve single cell genetic manipulations. So we deleted serine racemase from individual neurons in the hippocampus, and then compare how is that neuron different from the neuron that's sitting right next to it. Uh, and the hippocampus is an easy place to do these kinds of experiments. There's a a nicely laid out region because of the, the way that the uh, hippocampus is arranged. And we found that, that knocking out this enzyme in individual neurons had some significant effects on the function of NMDA receptors in those neurons. Um, as a control experiment, we wanted to repeat some of the other literature with the knockout mice. And that's where we got this unusual finding that we did not see any effects on, on synaptic plasticity in the knockout mice, which had been had been reported in three or four other papers. And so really that was the that was the origin of this study. But I found it when I saw that there was when we we filed this up and said, hey, there's this change of inhibition. Uh, and this was all uh, work from the first author, Shakeb Jami, who's a postdoc in my lab um, and an excellent electrophysiologist, slice electrophysiologist. Um, he found these very dramatic effects on on inhibition. Um, in these mice, uh, and knowing that there's changes of inhibition in schizophrenia as a psychiatrist and knowing this literature, I said, we got to follow this up and keep moving with this. And he did a great job just collecting all of this information. And then the graduate student, Jonathan Wong, who's a middle author on this paper, had been doing those single cell deletion experiments for his, for his work that I talked about. Um, I said, hey, look at inhibition. In, in those slices that you're, you're doing. So he, which is really a key figure in this paper, which shows that there's a single cell effect. This is not a network-based change of inhibition. This is a, a change of inhibition that's driven at a single cell level. It's a cell autonomous change. You knock out an enzyme regulating NMDA receptor function in individual neurons and those individual neurons will lose a bunch of their GABA synapses, whereas the, the neuron right next to it is perfectly fine. So this was kind of the, the piece of data that brought this paper together and said, hey, there's, there's something more going on here um, that could be relevant to the onset of, of schizophrenia and some of these GABAergic changes. So this genetic approach provided a, a, a significant, uh, I think, benefit over a lot of the pharmacological approaches that are not really modeling the neurodevelopmental onset of the disorder. They're modeling, hey, we see symptoms in these animals when we give this drug, so we're going to study this. I think having um, some connection to the, the development that's happening is, is really the advancement here. And as for the other authors, uh, they're members of the McAllister lab who they are experts in 
the immunohistochemistry and I had gone to them to say, hey, can we learn to do some of this to help out our study? And it was just like, hey, we'll just do this. This will be straightforward. And um, um, so Scott Cameron with an undergraduate assistant, Emily Daly, were able to get some really well supporting uh, immunohistochemistry data showing a loss of synapses in the C1 region of the hippocampus in these knockout mice. And they were led by their, uh, my, my boss, the director of the Center for Neuroscience, Kim McAllister. Um, and it was great to have them involved in the study. Wow. Yeah. So you really made great benefit of this amazing center at UC Davis. And please say hi to Kim, you know, a big fan of her. And now, um, what are the future steps? Do you want to follow up on these, uh, you know, autonomous cell interactions or where do you want to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting avenue. And um, it really was in line with this work from Wei Lu's lab at the NIH, where they had found that they, if they knock out NMDA receptors completely, ours is a much more subtle manipulation. We're not removing the receptor. We're just removing one of the factors that it needs. Um, but if you remove the entire receptor, there's also these massive defects of GABAergic synapse development. So we are talking about ways to collaborate and um, and continue understanding the the basic mechanisms of how NMDA receptor function in in synaptogenesis can really have an impact on GABAergic synapses because we really think of them as separate synapses, um, and we don't know how that cross-regulation is occurring. Um, there is some elect uh, electron microscopy data from a few groups that have occasionally shown NMDA receptors sitting in GABAergic synapses. We have no idea what that could be, what that could be doing, if that's a, uh, a reproducible and, and uh, recurring finding or not. That would be extremely surprising and, and interesting if NMDA receptors are actually found in the GABAergic synapses. Um, I think more likely it's probably a, an activity-dependent regulation that um, the activity, the calcium influx through NMDA receptors is, is somehow regulating uh, the, the development of the GABAergic synapses. So the follow-up studies we're doing initially is to really nail down, is this a developmental change? Is there a loss of GABAergic synapses after they develop? Are they being prevented from being developed in these knockout cells? So that's where we're trying to move in earlier time points to say, you know, do we prevent these synapses from forming or do they form and then are lost for some reason? Wow. Yeah. And you have all the tools in the great center and expertise. So I hope you submit it to Journal of Physiology again. So we're a big had, fans of your work. And uh, I had a great experience uh, <laughs> submitting to Journal of Neurophysiology. Thank you so much. So, so what are the important take-home messages that you want the readers to remember, you know, from, from your work? Oh, wow. I, I think that I think the big take home is that these complex disorders are complex and that we really need to understand basic fundamental biology of neurons and how they function. Um, and that more investment and at the basic science level, you know, ultimately will pay the biggest dividends. And I think this is true in all of all of medicine is that the, the big advances come from really understanding the basic fundamental mechanisms. So I think the take home is support your, your basic scientists. <laughs> you know, and that leads me to, to one more question, you know, like I'm, I'm in a clinical department, but I've mentored so many medical students, basic scientists, and, and so many 
people have this dilemma. Do you want to be an MD? Do you want to be a, a PhD? And, and where is your career going? And, and, and unfortunately, I'm, and it's my perspective, unfortunately, so many MD PhDs end up in private practice and, and, and don't become the scientist like you and yourself. And um, so, so what's your, your advice to all these people that, that are struggling with this? You know, yeah, do I it's, a, be an it's MD a big question. PhD? Yeah, I went the opposite direction. I have in my current position have no clinical responsibilities. I do I do miss it because I really like caring for patients. Um, but my trajectory was that I was very excited about the the clinical practice and and I found that when I when I actually saw lots of patients over my career that we are very limited in ultimately what we do to help people. We have a lot of effective treatments. We can help people, but at the same time, it feels very superficial. We're not really addressing the underlying issues. And there's so much more that we could be doing if we just understood what was happening. So that was really motivation for me to, to say, I need to get back into the lab and really use that expertise that I have of studying the molecular details that are occurring in cells. Um, but it's a, it's a big issue. Uh, I think MD PhD programs are great. I think clinicians that have the PhD background have a, a much greater appreciation for the challenges that are remaining in understanding disease. Um, I think our current system makes it very hard for the classical you know, superstar of both clinical and basic science, I think it becomes challenging to do both with, with the demands of funding and, and clinical work these days. So I think we have to really think about how we identify the best candidates for MD-PhD programs and really mentor them and, and keep them engaged in the research aspect when the, the challenges, the pressures of life and clinical practice can really pull people away from the, the, the challenging basic science questions. Yeah, John, I mean, this resonates very much with me because, you know, like I think it is so critical for the basic scientists to, to see the limitations of, of, you know, an animal model and, and how tough the reality is and, and how hopeless we're. And unless you, you are interacting with the clinical partners and, or have an MD, you know, we often are not studying something that might be relevant. So I I'm really appreciate this. And I, I think your work is so relevant and, and hopefully in the future, we'll, we'll be able to address these underlying mechanisms that, that lead to these horrible diseases. And, and my big hope is of course that, you know, if we understand these underlying mechanisms will not only let's say treat schizophrenia, but all the other imbalances that we have. And so there will be fundamental shifts. So, so the exciting thing about basic science is that you don't know what, where it's going to go. Yeah. Exactly. You make fundamental discoveries and you, you know, you may be studying what you think is schizophrenia and you're studying something completely different, but all <laughs> equally important. You know, and that's an important point because I often, you know, interact with uh, parents and, uh, and they kind of feel like, why don't you study just the disease that, that my kid or another kid is suffering. And, and unfortunately we don't do this, but at the same time, this is by purpose because we want to good at the mechanism and it can benefit something that we did not expect. So it's, it's great. John, it was a great pleasure talking to you and we, I'm sure we can have a beer and talk even more about it. And uh, I look forward to, yes, to more you. of your papers and thanks again and greetings to all your 
your co-workers and and thanks for this wonderful study thanks for Bye -bye. having me Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.